welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. episode 152 of the Proper Mental Podcast and my guest this week is Kieran Cunningham who is an author and an editor, a climber and a mountaineer and after being diagnosed with bipolar 1 while at university Kieran spent the best part of the next decade hitchhiking all over the world trying to figure out what he wanted to do and who he was supposed to be and how he was going to live with this diagnosis and along the way he found that climbing was the perfect way for him to find peace and to manage his illness Eventually he landed in Italy, where the mountains and the local climbing community helped to keep him well. But that all changed when Covid hit, and Italy became one of the first countries to lock down, and issued one of the strictest lockdowns. Which of course prevented Kieran from getting outside and getting into the mountains, which was something that he'd relied upon for so many years to keep him stable. And in Kieran's book, which is called Climbing the Walls, he writes about what it was like to be trapped inside, away from the mountains, away from his family on his own, and feeling his mental state drift towards mania while rapidly running out of medication. And in this episode, I chat to Kieran about being diagnosed with a mental illness at a young age and at a time when no one was really talking about bipolar. We talk about how that diagnosis affected him. And we talk about how bipolar has impacted him throughout his life, his love of climbing, and how it helps his mental state. And we talk about his time in Italy that led to him writing the book. I really enjoyed Kieran's book, and I really enjoyed chatting to him. It's a it's a wonderful conversation, and something that really kind of struck me uh, when chatting to Kieran, you could really like see his energy even through the Zoom screen, you know, and when he was uh, talking about some of the more challenging aspects of his mental health, you could see you could see in him that that weighed quite heavy. And then when he was talking about climbing, he just lit up. He became more animated and he just looked different. It was um, it was amazing to see, you know, to see that that passion for it. And yeah, I really enjoyed chatting to him. It's great to get a bit of insight about the book, about climbing the walls. I really enjoyed that when I read it. Something about Kieran being trapped in that apartment and knowing that his mental state is declining and knowing what's potentially coming and being able to do very little about it. Um, It was quite hard to read at times. Yeah, quite intense, I would say. It was a great read and I got really invested in in the story, you know. I was really like, I really wanted him to to do well. I really wanted him to be okay, you know. Um, But yeah, it's a a great read. You can get it wherever you get books from. I highly recommend you check it out. If you want to connect with Kieran, all his information is in the episode notes. If you would like to connect with me, all my information is in the episode notes. And if you would like to support Proper Mental to keep it independent and ad-free, then you could join the Patreon community. It's £5 a month. There's a link to sign up in the episode notes. And for your £5, you get early access to the episodes. You get the videos that aren't available anywhere else. Loads of behind-the-scenes content. And I'm just trying to build a, a little community around the show, you know, somewhere where we can hang out and chat and check in with each other. And if you'd like to join us, if you'd like to help the show, that would be really appreciated. Another way to help the show is, of course, to leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to this on. This is episode 152 of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Kieran Cunningham. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. 
So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Kieran Cunningham. How are you, mate? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you, mate. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Uh, whereabouts are you today, mate? So I'm uh, I'm uh, back in Scotland now. Um, I'm in uh, uh, Fife, not too far away from St Andrews. Uh, right. Typically yeah. Mingan weather. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can work can well imagine. Yeah. I thought it was only like when I was like setting up for this and plugging in and everything. I was because I know that you you travel a lot and you move around a lot. And I was like, I didn't even ask him about like time difference or anything like that. I wasn't <laughs> sure if you'd be like somewhere far away at a funny time in the morning. But uh, yeah. no, I just got back got back from Italy on. Uh, on Sunday night, so caught me a good time. Yeah. Oh, mate. Yeah, super. Was um was is Fife like? Has that always been sort of you know home? Is that where you um started off? Is that? Uh, it's, it's like it's where I grew up. Um, I'm still in, I'm back in the same village I, I grew up in, but um when I was about, so I actually lived away from here for twenty years until just after the pandemic, and then my parents are getting on a bit, um, so they they kind of needed help at home and that, so. I, I moved back to to lend a hand. It's quite a it's quite a culture shock coming back to coming back to you know rural Fife um, after uh, after all those years away, but kind of kind of making it work now. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. It tends to be the I suppose it like I don't know. It's the circle of life, isn't it? Really, like quite often we have to like uh, yeah come back around and go home and figure it all out. It's always weird. Like my family are from Wales and I live near Liverpool, so it's always weird. Like when I go home, like. Yeah, when you've changed and things at home haven't changed or, you know, like it's, uh, I don't know, there's a lot of identity stuff going on with it, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Trying to trying to slot back in. So probably the best place to start really is with climbing, mate. When did that, um, when did you first sort of, when did you first get to have a go at climbing? When did that sort of passion start for you? Um, So um, my dad's a climber um, and I think when I was about five, he started getting me into it, just sort of like chuck me on a rope and, to see how we got on uh i don't have like i don't have too many memories of that time but like a few that i do have remember being like absolutely terrified um even though like he had me on a what's called a top rope so if i fell you know nothing was going to happen but um still you know absolutely shitting myself um as can be expected you know you're five and (laughs) suddenly you're 20 meters above where you normally are uh so I uh, yeah about it was about five took a break like uh, oh took some time away from it in my teens um I did, discovered tenants lagger and females and stuff and and uh, came back to it in my twenties um yeah, yeah so with gusto uh, that was I uh, kind of making up for lost time and all that yeah was it sort of obvious to you even from young mate that there was something something there for you some sort of like a attachment some bond with with climbing. Um, I don't think so when I was young, you know, I was into football and everything as well, and um, into music, into, I was like quite into literature as well, and things like that, and I wasn't really sure if I'd ever come back to it, you know, in my early 20s, I was, um, uh, you know, I did, did a degree, went on to do a PhD, and um, I just, you know, I didn't really think about it then, you know, I, was, I had sort of other ambitions, Um and then, you know, going through a pretty rough period in my 20s, I kind of fell back into it um, very randomly. I found a job teaching in uh, Trieste in Italy. And uh, just to get some um, just to get some peace, really, I used to bugger off every weekend up into this, um, this area, really remote area on the Slovenian border. And uh, I'd just go hiking, you know, um, 
so I just couldn't deal with being in the city and all the noise and everything. Uh, I had like I had a, like a lot of perfect cliffs, so I thought, right, shit, yeah, you know, I know how to do this. Um, may as well, may as well give this a bash again and see what happens. Uh, so I, I started climbing, climbing. Uh, I was climbing alone uh, at that point. Um, um, I was very, I went through a very antisocial period, you know, misanthropic. I just didn't really want to see anyone. And I had, you know, I had a great time. And actually, uh, I noticed then that it really helped with, uh, with what I was going through then. I, yeah, I suppose. So, yeah, if, if you're looking for some peace and quiet, looking to a, a, escape being sort of up there and ab- above everything. And um, yeah, I'd imagine it's quite, quite different. I went on it. I was nothing to do with climbing at all. But my wife and I did one of those uh, things at the back of a boat where they pull you on a you know, was it? Is it parasailing, something like that, where you go up in the air on the back of a boat and just sit <laughs> and get pulled along? And the, the my main sort of memory and thought of that was how quiet it was when you were that high up. That was quite shocking to me, and I'd imagine that's a similar a similar vibe when you're um you know halfway up a very tall <laughs> mountain. It's a, a a change in in environment, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just it's just kind of like a a removal isn't it it's like no one can contact you up there and there's, there's no bloody way you're answering your phone if anyone phones you you know so uh aye, it's just like a nice little um uh, for me it was all i think every time i do it even even now even if i'm doing it like in an indoor gym i go to the place in at edinburgh quite frequently for training you know as soon as you step off the ground there's like these little parentheses set around what's happening and you know nothing can get around them which is is wonderful uh, from my perspective yeah and and rare in um like modern life right where we're so like surrounded or bombarded and it it, it's hard to get a hard to get a minute isn't it you know hard to get a minute really is yeah 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 i think that's the biggest challenge from for like so many people these days is actually you know eking out that time that you need to um to do your own thing and uh whatever um Whatever helps you with with what you need help with. Um, that sounds a bit vague, but yeah, I've watched, you know, there's just so many things that, that people need to take time for. You know. Yeah, that's it exactly. And it, it, I don't know. It's hard sometimes to even realize that you need to take time for it when you're on that treadmill of life, um, just kind of going through the the motions of society that everyone's doing, and you you can kind of, I don't know. I suppose speaking about my own experience, I kind of got lost in that. I lost sight of myself in that. And that played a huge part of me um, getting unwell is that I didn't have a an outlet or some way of escape. And I didn't really know that I needed one because I was just doing the same as everyone else. So I thought, well, everyone else is all right. Maybe I should just be all right. You know, so uh, we kind of get wrapped up in all that, don't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, for, for you, I, I don't what for you, what was the, what was the thing that got you off it? Like, um, it was uh, just getting really mentally ill, basically. Um, okay. My uh, when my son was born in 2016, that like my brain kind of like broke, and I think up until that point, I'd been living very inauthentically. You know, very I'd no idea who I was, and I really just lost myself along along the way. You know, and um, when this that big event happened, 
there was no space. I couldn't absorb it. The, the, everything that came with it, the change, the everything, it was too much and something inside of me just, just clicked. And, um, yeah, I got sick like really, really quickly after, the, after that happened. Um, so yeah, it was uh, like, I don't know, humans were so, um, I always describe what happened to me as like death by a thousand paper cuts, <laughs> you know, like it, it just yeah. added up, added, and it was so small. I didn't know. And I, I didn't know. And I didn't know where to look and I didn't know what was going on. And I just got on with it. And then eventually, it eventually, you know, the straw has to break the camel's back at some point. Um, and yeah, and that's kind of like what, what happened to me, but I mean, humans are resilient, right? We can put up with some crap for a long time, can't we? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny that you say the death by a million paper cuts. I always called it, uh, mine death on the installment plan. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, funny hearing that. I was just talking about that the other day, actually. So it's, yeah. Um, nice little coincidence. All right. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you know, getting around to sort of mental health and mental illness, when does that enter the picture for you, Maze? When does that kind of start? Um, so in my teens, um, you know, I started, uh, I suppose I was probably about 14, 15. I started noticing things were um, a little bit um, off kilter, you know. Um, I was, I think, 15, 16. I was diagnosed with uh, depression, thrown a medication. But, um, you know, it quickly became clear to me that it was, there was something a bit more than that going on um, because I was, uh, I suppose, you know, back then there wasn't much awareness of bipolar. And, you know, I, I really had, if someone had asked me then, you know, what it was, I would have, I would have no idea. Um, but I suppose it's quite difficult to diagnose the, the sort of manic side of things because, uh, certainly for me at that time, manic episodes were fucking amazing. You know, <laughs> it was like at the start, it was just like uh, I don't know. It was it, they still are. I mean, I'm I'm medicated now, and that and uh, so that really takes the takes the edge off them. But you know, um, they, they would have varying durations. Let's say it was a, a you know three weeks or something like that. You know, the first maybe two weeks would be absolutely gorgeous. You know, everything in the world would be um be, be wonderful and spangled and just like you know very similar similar to the experiences people uh recount when they're taking uh, hallucinogenics and stuff but yeah but as with you know uh drugs there was a there was a crash at the end of it which was not always so nice um but that's when i was that's when i was going to the doctor you know because uh, yeah. that was the shit bit so so, oh, okay, you've got depression. Yeah, you know, they don't, you don't go to the doctor when you're having a great time, and yeah, yeah. Oh, so man, was, was... Uh, right, sorry. No, go for it. Sorry, um, I, I, I mean, I didn't. That I still, I wasn't diagnosed with bipolar until I was actually uh, uh, in university, and I just didn't believe them, to be honest. So that was, I, was, I think, it was eighteen at the time. Yeah. Hmm. Was there anything about like? bipolar out was it called bipolar it was panic depressive i can actually still see like the leaflet that the um the doctor uh gave me i was in edinburgh at the time uh and it was manic depression uh right. yeah so um, yeah so i'm guessing there wasn't much um much out there to kind of even read up on it or research what it was or anything like that maybe no no i mean I, i'm uh so i'm not that ancient the internet was about then but i had like no bloody clue how to use it and it certainly wasn't as you know the same tool that it is these days um so yeah when they when the doctor told me about it, it was basically essentially that's what it was you know it was like a leaflet and a prescription 
my high school girlfriend at the time, you know, still good friends with her. Um, she's actually a psychologist now, and then she'd obviously had interest in it from a young age. She was, she actually suggested that that might be the case, that I might be bipolar um, before before the diagnosis. Um, so yeah, I spoke to her a little bit about it, but um, I think you know there was a lot of for one reason or another, denial. It just didn't, manic depressive, it just sound, it doesn't sound nice, does it? It's, uh, um, and it wasn't, certainly wasn't something I wanted to, to, you know, share with my friends or that. Yeah, there's so much like internal stigma and shame around diagnosis and labels and whatever you want to call it. I know like for me for a long time, I didn't want to, I didn't want to like I couldn't move forward with getting help with these things in therapy and medication and all the stuff that I do now, because I thought, well, once I start saying it and embrace that I am it, <laughs> then, well, then it's real. And I don't want this to happen. I don't want it. I don't want it. So I'm not going to engage with it. Right. So it was just like yeah. a, this huge d- denial thing, but there's so much internal um, shame and stigma about these, these, these labels, isn't it? I think a lot of that, we put that on ourselves, maybe. I know that, that was the case with me. I often say to people, oh, I st- you know, I suffer with depression and anxiety and all these things. And, um, uh, you know, most people don't flinch now, but <laughs> I kind oh, of yeah. felt, I felt like they would have flinched, you know, maybe a few years ago. Yeah. I, I, even, you know, to this day where if, you know, I'm speaking to people and I, I've, I know them well enough to tell them that, you know, I am bi- them bipolar. Uh, I sometimes have difficulty with it because, you know, I want people to approach me as human first, bipolar second, you know, that's not, you know, that's just kind of there. It's not, a, it's not the, the whole thing, you know, it's just a part of the whole, it's just, yeah. Yeah. And you know, I suppose we're never quite sure how people are going to respond. That's the that's the big worry, and you know, I I personally, in my experience, most people are, are are good people, and you know, and they is they don't maybe don't know how to respond appropriately, but they want to respond appropriately. But we kind of put that pressure on ourselves, don't we, to not have to ask them to respond? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not quite sure what I'm trying to say there, Kieran. But oh, I, I totally you, get you. you know I totally mean? get yeah. you. Mm. I, I mean, I've, that's something I've really struggled with over the years. I think. Um, because you know, I didn't really tell anyone apart from that high, uh, my high school girlfriend until I was thirty-one, and when I did, you know, they, were, they weren't always sympathetic ears that they, <laughs> the confession fell on, and it did feel like a confession. You know, it wasn't just like you know, dropping it into discussion or whatever. Um, I remember telling my boss at the time uh, in Italy, and uh, he asked me if it was what Rain Man had. Uh, so like, oh, fuck's sake I don't fancy doing this again if that's you know I remember dating a girl and her um, you know promptly ghosting me before ghosting was a thing uh, um, and yeah I, but you know at the same time there were there were other people who were who were lovely about it so yeah it's, it's always going to be going to be differences in how people react True. Yeah. And yeah, you kind of realize how much we're informed by like the media, you know, like, so they'll have a, a character with a, you know, like if any, there's a serial killer, they're always a schizophrenic, right? That's just how the media write these parts. And I think that does inform it, doesn't it? And it, it yeah. creates this like fear around these, these words, but like when you sort of um, more used to 
talking to people who are used to hearing them, then there's no stigma attached to it at all. But outside of the mental health community, outside of the space, then they're shocking. But I think people just, yeah, they think of something they've seen on the telly or on EastEnders and it's mm. hard to hard to make sense of, mate. Yeah, it's tricky. Right. Did you feel like, I suppose from being like at university as well, at like that young age, was there that element of like, well, like, you know, my life's over now sort of thing. Like I've got this so young, I've got my life in front of me. I should be at uni having fun and yet, here I am dealing with this shit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my first year at uni was, you know, the first six months I, I really struggled. I uh, went through a, a, a pretty harsh uh, depressive period, and but then I met a bunch of bunch of people and uh, um, started having a really good time. Uh, and then all of a sudden, I had, you know, I had a pretty bad manic episode and a big crash at the end of it. And that's, that's when the, the diagnosis came. And I just thought, oh, fuck, you know, that's, you know, what now? Um, I kind of felt that just by chucking that label on 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 top of on top of my name, it was, uh, I was no longer the person that they'd related to all that time. So, so there was, I felt, you know, I was worried about losing the friendship and uh, yeah, just worried about the future. I thought, how am I going to navigate, you know, struggled enough navigating life thus far. Is it going to be harder now that I know this? Um, or just sort of feel myself like kind of damaged goods as well. So mm. I'm sort of starting from a, from a few steps back from everyone else. Um, yeah, I relate to that a lot, you know, like trying to figure out, I remember sort of after a a, a really rough year and I'd been off work and things like that and um, like coming back into the world once I started to, I started um, medication and I started like, you know, telling the truth in therapy and like really trying to work to get better rather than just hoping it was just going to happen. And I remember like, I, I felt different and like I came back into the world and everything was the same but I wasn't, and I wasn't sure how I kind of like fitted in anymore. You know, it's like a new version of me. It's so so strange, isn't it? When we we've been through this, for us it's massive, it's seismic. But then for everyone else, like you know, you're still Kieran, I'm still Tom. You still look the same. You know, like how could so much have have changed? You know, it's hard, isn't it? There's a lot to kind of work work out. Yeah, how you fit back in. I think. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. What about after uni, mate? Like, how did you, because I know you've done like loads of traveling. I read a a, a guest blog that you uh, wrote somewhere and it said that in one of your trips, you like hitchhiked 173 times or something like that, mate. Was that? Yeah, uh... um, 273. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I kept track. Uh... <laughs> Was that like after uni, did you hit the road for a bit or how did that work? How did that come so about? I After uni, I... so I went to Portugal for, um, for five years, uh, I studied postgrad over there, and then at a certain point, that was um, uh, yeah, I was doing a PhD over there, and then I about six, seven months before the end, I had a massive manic episode. I actually, um, actually overdosed, um, and I was in, in hospital for for a while. And when I got out, I just thought, okay, um, um, fuck it, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, uh, I, I was absolutely, I, was, I hated the PhD I was doing. Um, uh, I was struggling with work, um, struggling with the relationship I was in. Um, and uh, so I just took off, took off to America uh, for for a year. And yeah, I didn't have much money. I, I, I'd, um, 
I think I had like $800 when I set off uh, and started hitchhiking in uh, South Carolina. Um, and I made it all the way to, to San Francisco and back. Um, I stopped off in the way uh, in uh, New Mexico for about three months and lived in a commune there for a bit. Um, but it was, you know, looking back on it, that was probably, that was one of the best experiences of my life. Um, um, so it's kind of hard to, it's hard to explain that, but I was just living day to day and didn't really have to deal with any of the, the you know, the regular pl pleasure, uh, pressures you have when you're, when you're in one place. And yeah, that's something, maybe like a little bit past it now, but sometimes something I'd love to do again. <laughs> yeah, sure. Did that kind of help you? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot when when we're ill, particularly if we've got a like a specific diagnosis or label and you feel like you can't slot in, kind of like I think I was talking about before. And then when you, when you have to just go out there and experience the world and back yourself as well, you know, like it's so when we've been unwell, it's so quick to see our own limitations. How am I going to have a life? Can I do this? And sometimes just prove yourself wrong on a, on a massive scale. And you kind of teaches you, right. To like, I can be okay. And I can do like great stuff. And you know, there's something to be said for that. I think to rely on, on yourself to get you through these situations and to, does that make sense? What I'm yeah, trying to get totally. out there, I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, part of part of that journey then was, you know, it was all about self reliance, and I was pretty proud of myself as I, you know, as I was traveling, because um, I, you know, I was hitchhiking, I was, I was sleeping in the tent, I was sleeping rough. I just showed myself that I could survive, and I, you know, did it in, uh, in, a, in a, a pretty hard way. You know, like a lot of the time I was sleeping rough on city streets and stuff, and then getting up in the morning walking out to the freeway and trying to hitch a ride um uh and after that you know walking for you know walked well over a thousand miles as well like in, in the mountains in the desert and yeah it that you know definitely helped me to, to a certain extent it was you know i think looking back part of it was trying to run away from things because i think i'd, I'd probably accepted by that point that yeah well, you know just like seven years after the diagnosis of yeah i'm bipolar you know but uh um i saw everyone else going on with their lives and being successful and you know looking non-mental and i was like all right fuck. <laughs> i can't do that i'm just gonna go do my own thing for a while yeah. and the, the i i suppose like timeline wise i really want to get us to um to italy around the time of the the pandemic because that's where your book is is set and that's where i've like found out about you and stuff so was it kind of eventually like a life of travel and adventure that led to more climbing and more nature that would eventually take you to ending up in italy is that kind of how it worked yeah pretty much i mean i so i had a job in uh, like say in trieste and uh um when i left trieste i was okay i came back to the uk for a little bit and i was like okay i know what i need to do um i need to be in the mountains um also need some cash to survive so um i'm gonna look for another job that's closer to to bigger mountains and with plenty of places where i can go rock climbing uh and then this job popped up in a place called sonrio uh <clears throat> which is up on it's in uh, lombardy up on the swiss border uh so yeah jump jumped jump to the chance um and i had an interview over the phone and the guy the boss was like, "Can you be over here in two days?" And I was like, yeah, got to work a month's notice at my current job, uh, but I did it anyway. Yeah, I just jacked it and uh, hopped on a plane, and 
yeah, that was so. I was there for, uh, you know, as soon as I arrived there, it felt like home. I remember driving up the valley and immediately having this. It was almost like a deja vu experience. Everything just sort of being where it should be, um, and like recognizing it, even though I'd absolutely never been there before. And uh, <clears throat> I was there for five years before the the COVID pandemic uh yes yeah that that was something that really like jumped out when i was reading your book i like the whole like the start of the pandemic when it first started to like creep onto our radar and stuff like that and i think like i don't know i i think we've we've come back from it so quickly and i don't mean from a like a physical health perspective i mean from a mental health perspective because like everything changed and then it just changed back and for me, it was too quick. I was like, I'm not ready for it to change back. Not because I'm worried about the virus, but because I'm worried about just just ignoring this thing that's just happened for for two years. But when I was reading your your book, it really reminded me of that that uneasy feeling that started to creep in for everybody. I think, and everyone went from watching it on the news and thinking, ah, it'll never, you know, it'll never get out of China, and then slowly that kind of like it ramped up and. It, it's such a strange time to think about now, isn't it? When we look back, it's almost like, I don't know, it's just weird, isn't it? It's so Absolutely. strange. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, so I, like I say, I left Italy just on the back of the pandemic to come back here. And uh, the first time I went back, it was so weird, like walking about the streets and I was like, shit, there are people here. Uh, <clears throat> nobody's wearing a mask. And, I, you know, during the whole during the whole lockdown over there, which was, you know, particularly brutal. We weren't allowed to leave our houses. Um, I remember looking over the town and just the whole place kind of had this very doomed look about it. It was all very uh, gloomy and no one, you know, no one walking about and church bells weren't ringing. And then to go back to almost a year, no, a year later and seeing everything change in full life again, uh, it, was, it was so weird. Yeah, just, I couldn't really reconcile that with the, the memory of how it was when I left, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it, it, there's, um, yeah, I mean, Italy were, they'd locked down quick, didn't they? And they locked down hard, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think by the first cases, um, in, in Europe and they were all very close to, to Sondrio where I lived. Um, I think one of the sort of abiding images a lot of people have from the outset of the pandemic is the, the, the military trucks carrying the, the you know the dead from the hospitals in Bergamo and um, and yeah I mean I, I was pr pretty close to Bergamo um, I actually as you know from the beginning of the book I was my girlfriend at the time was uh, um, was in Turkey and I'd been visiting her and I flew back into to Bergamo just as the lockdown was about to kick in and you know everything was absolutely deserted um, there was you know no one in the train station um very few people in the airport and you know i, I remember walking getting into sonrio which is it's a decent size of a town it's maybe um 10,000 people 15,000 walking up through the streets and not not seeing a soul you know um yeah yeah did it did you kind of like did it become apparent quite quick that, um, yeah, climbing was kind of off the table and nature and all these things, all these things that you've used for years to, to keep yourself, to keep your head on, um, suddenly all that's not there, right? 
Uh, well, I mean, to begin with, I just always thought, right, I kind of thought, well, we're kind of set apart, you know, everyone else was down in the city and that, they're screwed. Uh, we'll just bugger off up the mountains and we'll be fine. Uh, do our usual thing. Um, and we did, you know, the first couple of days we, we went climbing. Um, we Actually, we went ski mountaineering. Uh, and, yeah, we kind of thought, just carry on doing that. But it was actually when we were up in the mountains one day, one of our friends received a call. She lived over the border in Switzerland saying they were about to close the border. Uh, and the day after that, the government imposed a ban on um, on leaving your village. And then the day after that, went one step further and it was uh, imposing the ban on leaving your house. It was, yeah, one or a couple of days after that. So all of a sudden it was, you know, when that final one came, I thought, oh shit, like, what now? Because, um, like you say, it was, was my, like, climbing is my main coping strategy. Um, and I'll lean on it heavily. I still do, you know. Mm, yeah, there's, um, I think there was a lot of that around the time in some respects as well. With even, like, you know, gyms closing and stuff like that, wasn't it? And I think a lot of people kind of realised it's like, oh, hang on, like, I've... I've got one coping mechanism and that coping mechanism isn't there anymore. And people really felt that. I think a lot of people didn't. Um, I mean, you know, it sounds like you knew it was your coping mechanism, but I think a lot of people didn't know that they had one until it was taken away and then they couldn't cope. And it's kind of a lot of things kind of became, became clear, you know, that was a, a big thing about that time, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. for a lot of us too, no matter what your uh, coping mechanism is, you know, at the start, both, uh, you know, it won't last long. Uh, just be a week or something. <laughs> and here we are, like a couple of months later, three months later. Uh, I, you know, just sort of chomping at the bit to, to yeah, to, um, steadily um, going downhill. Um, yeah, because I mean, the other big challenge that you you write about in the book as well is is getting your medication, um, getting that over to you in Italy because that was a a real you know, a real concern and a real problem too, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'd always, all the time lived abroad, I've had my, um, I've kept the same doctor in the UK um, and my mother has sent the, sent the medication out to me, um, which, uh, you know, I, I was about to say I realised my error then, but, you know, nobody expected you know, anything like that to come in and to, you know, post postal service to be shut down for so long and that but yeah so I ran out of I can't remember how long it was a couple of weeks in, into the uh, into the lockdown I ran out of medication and I, I remember going you know having you have the whole whole pills I was supposed to take however many a day and then breaking them in half and just sort of um, rationing myself um, and I was eventually saved by by um, uh, a friend of mine in the village who, who managed to get a hold of him from from a doctor friend. Um, a friend of mine who actually at that time I didn't know had COVID uh, and um, is still suffering to this day with, with long COVID. Um, yeah. Yeah. There, there's, there's a genuine um, feel of uh, peril reading your book when the sort of the meds are running out and you can you write about feeling the 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 mania sort of start to you know ramp up and you know because obviously you're a, you know what's happening right by by this point and um 
yeah, that really comes across in the the writing of 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 the book. It really brings it home of of what it would have been like to kind of like trap there and watching the pill stash go down while feeling the the need for the for the pill stash. You know, it's um yeah, that sounds really like a really intense thing, mate. Yeah, I, I mean, just all those things combined to um, put me in uh, in the worst situation possible. You know, wasn't climbing, I didn't have access to my could couldn't see my friends, couldn't see my family. Um, wasn't sleeping much, um, just because I wasn't probably being as uh, getting as much exercise in as I normally do. Depend on that for depend on exercise for that, and that's normally the number one thing that sort of can trigger me and obviously you know not having uh, access to medication or just taking less of it than I should be taking it I uh, it was I suppose a little bit predictable uh, to a certain extent but I was just sitting there praying that it, it wouldn't happen uh, but yeah you know I could at the same time could feel it coming day by day uh, yeah. yeah and is that when you because you kind of found a very um you know unique solution for helping you through it with uh with a, a variation on climbing mate how did that come about yeah so um i remember sort of thinking right shit's gonna go seriously wrong here you know if um uh um if i have a full-blown manic episode um you know because they can be like I, I described them being incredibly joyous at the start but in recent years more often than not that's you know that's lasted a while but then things things go pretty pear-shaped after that you know i get, get extreme anxiety um i start acting out of character quite often done things that are, are extremely dangerous um uh, so i thought yeah, I, I just and plus just the experience of of uh, subjective experience of that is, is pretty horrific so i thought okay shit, I, I don't want to do this now so yeah i was like what can i do and um, there must be something i can do so i you know i meditated a lot uh so sort of doubling down on meditation doing a bit more and then i thought one day out in the garden i'm, uh, I'm going to start climbing the walls of the house it's very short but I you know started doing the calculations in my head it's not too high I was like right okay so in a normal day climbing I would do x meters if I climb the walls of the house side to side up and down you know x number of times that would almost be like a day out you know at a crag with my with my mates or something you know so yeah I you know gave it a go and it was just, it was the first time going across it I was like approaching that you're not expecting it this feels fucking great you know um it just just the sort of tactile sensation of of hands and feet on the rock um the the movement of your body and everything uh it's just like i'd like to say um it felt like a fish being stuck out of water for a very long time and then chucked back in it was like a bit ah oh, yeah <laughs> okay <laughs> Uh, and I kind of realised then I was like, this could work, you know. This, I, yeah. So I spent hours and hours and hours on this wall on the house, my landlady's house. Yeah, often with her shouting down at me from the balcony above, telling me to be careful. I'm like, <laughs> she's called Clement. So in the book, I changed her name just because I didn't want people to rock up at her house and start climbing her walls and shit. <laughs> uh, so, 
her name is Clementina, and she's she's the sweetest woman in the world. Uh, and she's she's ninety, but maybe just past ninety now. And um, and yeah, I was like Clementina, I'm three feet off the ground. <laughs> if I fall, nothing too serious is going to happen. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I yeah. was it was that was the old the alternative could have been uh, could have been a lot worse, right? The alternative. To not yeah. climb in, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I mean, that was quite early on in the pandemic, and I think if I'd known then that it would have gone on for as long as it did, the, the Italian lockdown, and would have remained as strict as it did, um, yeah, it would have just, it would have, it would have been a mess, yeah, yeah. I know we kind of um, we touched on it briefly at the start, mate, but what is it about climbing specifically that like just centers you in that way i mean is it something you can articulate or is it just something that um so it's 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 pretty tricky i suppose um for me it's always been like a kind of airborne meditation so like i say i meditate um and i think anyone who does um who's practiced practice mindfulness um uh will know how sort of how you know you can shut off shut off from everything that's up here um just by going into going into the body and you really when when you're on the rock you're very much in your body because you're aware of the, the position of your body you're aware of um where your hands are on the rock where your feet are on the rock uh, and there's also the the aspect of being of uh, i suppose danger as well you know um and anyone who does any kind of extreme sport will know or probably have experienced that. If you don't have that acute awareness of what you're doing uh, and handling your, your your body in the right way, um, then something really really bad could happen. Uh, in this case, climbing climbing the walls of the house that wasn't the the case. You know, nothing terrible was going to happen, but um, just the the movement of it. There's still a very uh, a flow experience that comes um and it really takes you out of your head uh and and into your body again um and it's always uh, you know a bit of a in daily life anyway for me um so if you're making a distinction between types of activity you know there's like atelic activities and antelic activities and um, for me it's it's an atelic activity something i'm doing with no objective in mind everything else is done no matter anything you think about is with some objective in mind um um climbing on the other hand it's not it's very much like dancing um do it just for the sake of it um you're not trying to impress anyone um some people are maybe uh, in the sport you know if you're a pro or if you're trying to um trying to aspire to a certain level possibly but um it's something you do just for the sake of it you know it's called um someone gaston ribofat a famous climate um famously called us um conquistadors of the useless um because it is i mean what are you doing when you're climbing you're just fanning about on a, a big lump of rock and <laughs> you get to the top you beat your chest a bit and you realize no one's looking <laughs> so, it's, yeah. really, it's really pointless but it's yeah, like I say, it brings so many things to so many people. It's uh... yeah. Oh, mate, just hearing you describe it, then it, it's it sounds amazing. Yeah. Did you, um, as well as like you know, when people start climbing, I suppose you have to 
become more physically capable, but that like training the mind to stay switched on. Because like you say, I mean, you know, I follow on Instagram. I've seen some pictures of you very high. (laughs) And like you say, you can't can't switch off for a second. And is that like a – is that a skill to be learned and practiced, to just stay like present and switched on and focused? Is that something you can train and work on? Uh, Possibly. I I mean, I I think it's something that comes with experience for sure. But I'm always amazed by how – people who just get into climbing for the first time, even on the first day, how focused they are. They're they're probably more focused than people who've been doing it for a long time, just because they're crapping themselves. (laughs) I need to, I need to hang on. I need to see where I'm going. Where's the next thing? Where's the next hold? You know? Um, So yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing how quickly people get into that, that mindset. And to be honest, being, it's the challenges, I suppose, keeping that level of focus, but being able to remain calm, and that's something that you know definitely only comes comes with experience. Um, I say just back from from Italy, there, and we were doing a, we we did a very long climb in a day, um, which was about seven hundred meters in height, um, and and quite a difficult one, and um, the, uh, it, it was quite dangerous at times there's two types of climbing there's uh, sport climbing in which you have bolts already fixed in the wall so if you fall you know nothing's going to happen uh, just assuming you've got a competent uh, belayer holding your rope and that was trad this what we were doing was was trad climbing where you insert your own gear and you clip that into the rope and so it, it's it's all on you if you put something in uh incorrectly or um even just you know you've got a bit of bad luck and it breaks or a bit of rock breaks and it comes out uh then it's you know it could be could be game over so yeah and that that experience you know we were on on the wall for i don't know about 14 hours or something and uh, trying to keep the concentration and the calm for that length of time is is pretty important um because if you're if you're not calm you'd be you'd, you just wouldn't move uh uh, yeah. You probably knacker yourself as well, just grabbing on a little too tightly yeah. to everything. Yeah, because yeah. that's a um, that's a different type of energy as well, right? So the, obviously, the physical exertion is a lot easier to train for than any sort of like the mental exertion. The the those levels of concentration must be incredibly um, draining. Do you have to like recover in the same way that we recover from exercise? You know, drink your water, smash your protein, get a good night's sleep. Is it the same sort of thing for that? The other side of it, that mental side of climbing as well? Um, not really, actually. I mean, the, um, not for me personally, it might be, yeah. for people. I'm not sure, but this actually coming back from that, um, that big climb on, uh, uh, last week, um, I actually felt like my brain had had like a really good shower. It was something like I needed to get out of my system. And I was just elated, just, you know, it's not the hardest thing I've done in my life. Also not the scariest, but I, I haven't done that sort of thing for a while. Like I said, I've been, been back in the UK. You know, I've been focused on, on you still climb three times a week, but I've been focused on sport climbing, which is climbing shorter things. And, uh, you know, helping out, helping out my, my parents and stuff. Um, so this was actually, that was on my last day. Um, we got back, back to the car at like one in the morning I had to get up from a flight at four <laughs> so <laughs> I only had like I had like maybe an hour of sleep max and I got up and I was still smiling I was like yeah I feel you know I feel good this was uh, yeah. this was what I needed 
Oh, mate. Does the um the the staying calm when you're very high up and it is very potentially dangerous, does that ability to stay calm, does that translate like to other stuff? Like if something happens in your day-to-day life, are you able to kind of, you know, channel it and stay stay calm then? Does it, uh, I don't know, yeah, if that makes any sense at all. All right, no, it does. No, so there's like, I suppose there's two sides to it. You definitely have the sense of perspective you know you come down here and uh, you get pissed off because netflix isn't working on your tv it's like well you know this compared to that is not not a big deal you know um but then at the on, on the other hand uh i suppose i can't compart- try to a lot of the time i find myself compartmentalizing things you know like this is this is one life down here um and that's another life up there. Um, so I often see it's like a zero-sum game. Like the more time I spend down here, uh, the less time I spend up there. So I've kind of put them in these separate categories and it's hard. I quite often, I don't let things really cross over too much. Um, yeah, which is something I probably need to work on um, because it is such a big part of my life. Um, yeah. Yeah, I suppose it keeps it sacred, right? And uh and then it's the the challenge is, is getting the ratio right, <laughs> is, uh, is balancing it out. Yeah. Yep. Right. yeah. Well, one of the guys that did, did the climb with it was uh, um, I had the, I had this chat with him up there, and he's um, um, apparently had quite quite a quite a good career in whatever he was doing, and he just jacked it all in um, just so he could climb, and that's quite common. You know, I, you know, you, you just, one thing find a lot with climbers um, that you couldn't find perhaps with people who've played like tennis or pool like in their spare time or they wouldn't like you know leave their job and give up their house to go and live in a van and not wash for a couple of years and play about on rock but because we're quite climbers tend to be quite fanatical Um, just like your average climber as well I'm not even talking about ones who are likely to make a pro or whatever it's, it's quite a common thing so I, I suppose that gives an idea about how how addictive it can be and, and from that you know there's something behind that the reason why it's so addictive um and i think a lot of that comes back to it being you know what it gives people um yeah 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 do you get a lot of um uh like the benefits as well of of being in nature because that's something that's talked about with like mental health a lot more in recent years isn't it and um yeah. that, it always like fascinates me people's um relationship with nature i had um uh, i don't know if you know richard maybe the uh the yeah. the, the author right yeah, um, <laughs> yeah and he um yeah he had a like a really interesting take on that and you know and he was saying to me nature isn't like some green prozac for us to just dip our toes in when we need to feel a bit better you know he's like nature is out there doing its thing and we are part of it and you know it doesn't really care about us at all and um that that felt a lot more comfortable to me but i you know i, I suppose why it popped into my head um is when you were talking about uh, like setting your own course and looking after yourself. And sometimes it's just bad luck, right? When you, when you climb in, because nature doesn't care about us, right? Nature's going to do its thing. And whenever I watch them documentaries of people who get lost up a mountain or stuff like that, nature doesn't care that there's some bloke with a broken leg up a mountain, does it? If it's time to no, rain, no, no, yeah. it's going to rain, man, you know? And no, um, no. yeah. And I, I don't know, is there a, like, I suppose it's a two part question really is like, yeah. Do, how does nature help you and and is any of that that feeling of i don't know sometimes the that feeling of 
size and insignificance of us compared to nature is weirdly comforting i think in some ways maybe yeah absolutely i mean because you think about the weight we put on so many things um uh the, the sort of degree of importance and we get to so many trifling little things and um you i think when you're in the midst of nature it doesn't have to be big mountains you'd be like in a massive desert in a in a forest or something <laughs> these things you know compared to this and it's, it's just in a, not just size but the also the, the aspect of time you see how these things have been here for ages and they regenerate and they go on and they'll be here for a, a very long time after we're gone yeah it's it's it, 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 there's a realization there that how how small you are it's a, that's a bit of a cliche but that translates into maybe an ability to to look at things that happen in daily life and just say shit it just doesn't matter um really doesn't matter and all right that's that, that mm. thing's going to be, be beneficial all right yeah i've been thinking about that a lot recently i think with the like the changing of the of the seasons right sliding into autumn and on into winter and like we are the only species that doesn't adapt to the changing of the seasons and i i'm sure there's something in that you know the fact that every other species on the planet will change how they behave when the mm. weather changes when the seasons changes and we don't man we're just like grinding on that conveyor belt of life you know capitalist yeah, society yeah. and yeah, when yeah. we talk about you know mental health mental health more than mental illness obviously but like that day-to-day -day impact like I, I just think there's something in there that we should we should change we should change more to the seasons how we behave how we how we treat ourselves the things that we eat and just tune into it because everybody else tunes into all the other species and we just don't i, I don't know i think there's something there yeah absolutely i mean i'd gladly be a bear uh and going to um oh shit, i'm kind of still in italian mode uh letargo the what bears do in the winter um why the word's not coming to me now they go and sleep for a bit oh the hibernate hibernate yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i've been speaking italian but non-stop for the last couple of weeks so my brain like, coming back into english it's yeah it's a challenge um but yeah but i mean absolutely that would do it i think uh how much that would benefit people not you know if our um if our hibernation was even like reduced hours at work for a bit or um uh how, how beneficial that could be to to, to everyone Hi. Yeah, yeah yeah just turn how natural it would be as well because i don't think many i don't think any of us have the same energy uh throughout the winter as we do we do the spring and summer and early autumn yeah yeah, it, it, I like. I don't know, like, yeah, like so I've been thinking about it a lot, and this whole thing as it gets darker, and we're just turning our lights up brighter inside, that it just feels, you know, you feel that, right? You kind of feel the the fakeness of of bright lights and fake air, and compared to what's going on outside, and um, yeah, that's just kind of yeah something I've been dwelling on a bit, <laughs> a bit right, recently, right. mate. Yeah, I wanted to ask, and um, I, I don't want to like like curse you i don't know it might be bad luck or something like that but i thought i've got to ask anyway but um we obviously we've talked a lot about mental health um yeah. but with all like the climbing that you've doing uh, would i i'm just going to guess here but have you had some gnarly physical injuries as well kieran is that <laughs> like part and parcel of uh does that go along with, with it hi um so 
Um, I'd actually consider myself fortunate. I've had, um, so I've had um, broken ribs, um, uh, broken one broken leg, and uh, broken coccyx, which was probably the uh, the most ex exciting of them. It doesn't sound as exciting, but you know, your tailbone, but um, uh, that was probably the one that set me back the longest period of time because um, it was a it was a bit of a cracker of a break um, that was that was in a mountaineering accident um I, I fell through a cornice and ended up sliding down a mountainside for for um quite some distance maybe uh, 100 or 200 meters and uh, it was on a giant steep snow slope maybe about sort of 45 degrees in angle and uh it was just pure snow, except from one stone that was like maybe, I don't know, the size of this cup or a bit bigger. Uh, and my my ass, my tailbone found this rock on the way down. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what smashed it. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I, I actually had to crawl down uh, to my car and, and then get myself to hospital. Uh, and yeah, it took, took a very, I think it was probably like, uh, it was over a year before I was fully fit again from that. Yeah, no. yeah. I suppose that's kind of like um, I don't know. That must be yeah. Does it play in your mind at all, or do you just not? Is that like the climber mentality that you just like? Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's just part of. Uh, sometimes it happens, you know. No, it does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, in certain climbers, the uh, as you can maybe imagine, there's a lot of macho people who are like. Yeah, no, I don't give a shit. Or getting injured is part of it. I mean, I don't want to get injured. If I if I get injured, I have to stop doing it for like a very long time. So yes, I always on my mind, no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing really easy stuff indoors or you know just training indoors, or or doing more um, obviously dangerous stuff outdoors. Yeah, it's always there. Right. Yeah. What's the um uh you know what's the like the bucket list Clive mate? If there was one that you've always thought oh i'd love to do that or uh is it is there something is there something out there that's uh um well I'm, i suppose i'm a little bit um um different to other climbers in this because i don't like climbing in popular places um so i think a lot of climbers if you ask them that question they would say el capitan on on uh uh in yosemite like uh, alex honnold did I oh, was that um, the free solo guy, right? That was a free solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, uh, yeah. So that that piece of rock has been harassed like no end since uh, since that film. You know, just everyone in the world was like, "Okay, we're going to go there," and it's yes, the, the dream of so many climbers. But yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't fancy that. Um, the place we've done most of my um, serious climbing is uh, a place called Val di Mello and in the north of Italy and um, that's where that climb was last week and I have tons of objectives there and they're just they're all bucket list like that was a bucket list one last week um, but there's enough there to keep me going for for a lifetime so um, yeah and in, in terms of mountaineering you know when I was young I always thought oh K2 K2 um, but yeah I'm past that now I'm a bit a bit too old now I'm and uh, I couldn't afford the fees to do it. You need about fifty grand in your pocket for you know for a couple of weeks entertainment. I, I, yeah, yeah, that's it. That kind of like I don't know. You hear that a lot, doesn't you? Is, is the fact that a lot of these, um, just in general, like expeditions and stuff like that, is this so expensive that the only people 
who can afford to do it are people who really shouldn't be doing it. And that just causes just chaos and accidents. And uh, yeah, it's just a, just a bit messy, all that, isn't it, mate? Bit messy. Yeah, it's, pretty, yeah, it's pretty tragic, you know. Um, mm. yeah, exactly like you said. Uh, yeah. People with a lot of cash, but probably no experience. Uh, and they're the only ones who can, who can do it these days. Uh, oh, amazing. Well, you know, we're, we're hitting the hour mark here, so it's probably a great time to uh, to wrap it up. It's flown, huh? Yeah, it's just uh, gone straight. But, mate, thank you so much for your time today. I um, really, really enjoyed your book, and it was great to kind of um, chat to you about it and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, it was lovely to meet you, mate. Thank you for joining me today. Big up to the proper mental podcast. Proper mental podcast. If you would like to support the proper mental podcast, you can do so by joining the Patreon community. It's five pounds a month, and for that, you get early access to the episodes as soon as I record them. You also get the video recordings of these episodes that aren't available anywhere else. And it also allows me to keep this podcast ad-free. I don't want to interrupt these stories to try and sell you things. I don't want advertisements to get in the way of talking about mental health. I want to keep this show independent and the Patreon allows me to do exactly that. You can also be a part of a Patreon community that's ever-growing and expanding and it's filled with people who are passionate about talking about mental health, about getting into these deeper conversations. And hopefully as that community grows, there'll be all other sorts of behind the scenes content and different things that I'll be able to offer you for your money. If that sounds like something you'd like to be involved in, there's a link in the episode notes to get to the sign up page or you can go to patreon.com slash proper mental podcast. And please know that any and all support is hugely appreciated. Thank you very much for listening.